Good day to you ladies and gentlemen and welcome to Film Focus, episode 114, The Mount Rushmore of Film Composers. Well, hello there, ladies and gentlemen, off the north, south, east, and west, and welcome to another episode of Film Focus. I'm your host, the Hypersona 55, and I'm glad you decided to join me once again for some film-related discussion. And today, we have another interesting discussion for you. We are returning to the realm of film scores. Now, if you've listened to the podcast before, you'll know that film scores mean a great deal to me, and I have dedicated at least a couple episodes here and there on the topic of film scores, but... I am not alone. I am joined by returning guest, my homie, Ross. Well, thank you very much for having me back. It's uh, nice to be here and nice to talk film things once again. Uh, yeah, and yeah, like you, I'm a big uh, film score nut, so this will be, be a fun one, I think. Um, yeah, well, I'll let you elaborate on it a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, in terms of film score specifically, we are going to be talking about our Mount Rushmore of film composers because the great thing about film is that there are so many varied sounds that come out of them when you have very different composers whether they are like you know your classical noteworthy people to some new interesting sounds that have been showing up in the last 10 years or so Mm -hmm. film scores are very important to film and help elevate or enhance certain things that's happening on screen and I thought it'd just be really fun to highlight the cream of the crop in our opinions, who are our favorite people. And for me, you'll probably have a guess if you know the kind of people I gush about beforehand, Mm. but I feel like it'll be interesting to have Ross's opinion on here. So I feel like there's at least one we're going to overlap on in our top four, but we'll we'll see how it pans out. Full disclosure, it was very hard to narrow it down to four. (laughs) I'll say that right off the bat. (laughs) Oh, definitely. Even though my four has been pretty much like set in stone, I'd say for the last four-ish years I would still say there's every so often I find myself rotating between certain people just because certain film scores really like you know resonate with me maybe more so than certain others but yeah (laughs) can we do like a rapid fire runners up as as we're wrapping up (laughs) oh yeah no doubt man that'd be fun but (laughs) But we'll do our as you say our Mount Rushmore sort of top four and I feel like I'm going to be very nice and I'm going to let Ross start with his first entry on his Mount Rushmore. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, okay, so um, uh, my apologies if you hear paper rustling. I've got it written on a notebook pad here. Um, so, so okay, well, I'll start with one that I'm almost certain will be on your list too, and that is um, a surprise to no one, I'm sure, uh, John Williams. Ooh, yes, good choice. Is he also in your top four? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's difficult to know where to start with John Williams, because, like, he's a dude's... I don't know how old he is now. He's got to be, like, pushing 90, right? He's, yeah, something so, along the lines of that, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm going to Google it. <laughs> um, so, John Williams... All right, so, yeah, he's 88, and... <laughs> Ooh, so close. Still going strong. Like, you know, he still did Rise of Skywalker, um sort of most recently, I mean, 
Has he done anything since then? Like, um, oh. he, he still scores Star Wars movies, but I think he did the post that film that uh, Spielberg did a few years ago. Uh, well, he, he often works with Spielberg, uh, which, funnily enough, um, I mean, in terms of you know favorite scores by him, um, my top one's Jurassic Park. You know, whether or not you consider that Spielberg's best film, um, it is my favorite. And yeah, I think uh, if if we're going by sort of objective sort of like film twitter cinephile um like uh you know parameters then objectively schindler's list is probably spielberg's best film yes jurassic park is my favorite and it's i mean i think the thing with john williams like you, you just he's a master of just creating instantly iconic themes like the first sort of few notes of one of his themes, you know what film you're watching, you know? Yeah, yeah. But with Jurassic Park, you know, the minute, you know, whenever you watch that, you know, sort of the opening title screen, you just hear like that, boom, oh, it's like, yep, Jurassic mm-hmm. Park. And then, you know, you pop in Superman and it's like, it's like, yeah, I'm watching Superman. Yeah, yeah. And then any Star Wars film literally the first note, just the very first note, it's like, it's, yep, Star Wars. By the way, I'm completely tone deaf, so these probably don't sound anything like the actual notes in his... Uh, Mate, I'm not going to be that much better, so you're you're fine. <laughs> I appreciate that. But yeah, it's... Yeah, it's, it's tough to know where, where to start with him, because it, it's like, I mean... Yeah, like I said, just very instantly iconic themes, and... Like, yes, as far as Superman's concerned, you know, like, other people have done music for Superman media since then. Um, while I'm fairly ambivalent to Man of Steel as a film, Hans Zimmer's score was reliably solid. Uh, yeah. But it's like, nothing's going to top the original sort of Superman theme that John Williams composed for the 78 film for me. Like, it, I mean, you just, you hear that, and it's just instantly synonymous with the character, you know, it has the grand scale, it has kind of a like triumphant heroic fanfare. You get certain pieces of, I mean, if you're talking superhero stuff, you know, you have like superheroes always have a very different, depending on which hero you're tackling, there'll be a different tone struck with each thing. Like, you know, like any number of Batman movies, for example, you know, the score will generally be a bit more on the, you know, broody and dark and mysterious side yeah, um, and then you get something like Guardians of the Galaxy, um, which, by nature of that, like you know, while there is some good scoring in there, you know, you remember the Guardians films less so for that and more so for the pop music because it's just very much a part of those films' identity. And yes, no doubt. And but then you have something like Superman, who is, you know, like people. A lot of people say that you know Superman is you know a boring character, and I will. I will counter that somewhat. I, I think um, you get the right creative team behind him. You can make him very interesting, but I get why some people find him boring because he is a very sort of traditionally, you know, with the bit, he's the big blue boy scout. He's the all American hero who always does the right thing. Um, but, but yeah, it's, you, you know, you want a theme, you, you want, you want a main theme that'll kind of convey that and sort of be like, just make you feel right away like, yes, this is a big, heroic figure who will do right by everyone, save the day, and just that 
sort of triumphant fanfare that Williams brought to scoring that film just kind of nails that tone completely. It's glorious. Every time I hear it, you know, you can feel, you get the feels in your soul. And I always get like, you know, shivers down my spine. I'm like, I'm feeling the greatness, like, you know, just wash over me every time it starts up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even like the the main sort of musical hook, like those few notes, it even sounds like it's just shouting. Like, (laughs) and yeah, it's just, like I said, it's instantly synonymous with Superman. Just like any piece of music in Jurassic Park, for example, like is instantly synonymous with, you know, you, you can, I don't know how specific we're going to get with talking about this, if we're going to talk about specific tracks on the albums or anything like that. Um, but like yeah. with, I mean, okay, I can't think of any titles off the top of my head, but, but like with Jurassic Park, it's like you've got the track, which is welcoming them to the island as the helicopter's flying in, you know, the whole... And it's, you know, immediately from that, it's like, okay, you've got the wonder, you've got the scale, and, you know, ditto when when the first time they see the Brachiosaurus, you have sort of the main main theme kind of kicks in. It doesn't kick in, it, it eases in and sort of, like, swells and kind of wraps you up in the moment, which, yeah, like you say, pure movie magic, you know, Eight-year-old me watching that for the first time just absolutely floored me. <laughs> but um, you know, obviously later on, when uh, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Jurassic Park, but if you haven't, what are you doing? It's, I know, <laughs> I know. Like, well, spoiler alert: bringing back dinosaurs doesn't go well, and shit goes south. A few people get eaten, etc. And um, and then yeah, you know, you get to the raptors in the kitchen, which terrified me as a child, and oh. and yeah, you. <laughs> the score in that, you know, you've got, you get the spooky choir from the intro comes back, you've got more minor keys, you've got kind of those suspenseful strings coming through, and yeah, just all of these little tracks and little moments, you very instantly associate them with whatever moment in the film or whatever dinosaur you might have, and yeah, it's just, you you, you can't, it's one of those things where, like, I'm sure the Jurassic Park and Superman and, you know, a lot of the Star Wars, this would still be good movies, like, without John Williams' score, but having Williams' score attached to them, just, it just elevates them to another level, and, you know, knowing them as we know them now, you can't really have one without the other. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, Since we have the same member on the first person on the Mount Rushmore, I might as well just go in with John Williams as well. Um, So, yeah, Jurassic Park, like you said, iconic to a T. I love everything about that film score from, you know, the introduction when we have, you know, when they're trying to load up the raptor and then she starts, like, you know, eating that guard. I'm like, oh, God. Um, One of my favorite tracks is a sneaky one. It's like when Dennis Nedry is, like, you know, stealing, like, um, the... uh, are they like enzymes or something? What do you call uh, those em- embryos. embryos? Embryos, yeah, that's the word, yeah. So the music that plays when he's like being super sneaky, sneak, uh, stealing the embryos, I love that track. It's just like... Yeah, you get... But I love that. I've remembered that since I was like six years old. It's amazing. And you get a few more... You get a little more of the spooky choir in that one too, don't you? Or... or no, it's not the choir. They're like... You get like some woodwind instruments coming in, like that. I remember very clearly. There's like that close-up shot of his hands just sort of reaching in and popping it all into the can. Yeah, you, yeah. You hear like that kind of, like that kind of prehistoric sound mm. woodwind instrument. It's like yeah. <laughs> oh man, it's so good. Um, my other films that I would highlight is um, 
this one is a childhood favorite for me. Um, is Hook. Um, okay, okay. I'm one of the biggest defenders of that movie. I used to watch it on VHS all mm. the time. Okay. And um, I think John Williams' mu- music goes far and beyond to really captivate and fill that world with a sense of whimsy and adventure and uh, make you care about this um, story, which on paper, you know, could be interesting, but probably isn't that captivating. But I think because it's a solid of... premise, like, what if Peter Pan grew up? It's like, all right, I'll buy that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess, like, since a lot of people have, like, obviously fallen in love with Peter Pan as a kid, like, you know, having his adventures in Neverland, I guess, from a lot of people that I've talked to online about it, they were just never interested in, like, what happened if Peter Pan left Neverland and became a dad and just, you know, lost the magic. But I found the film really fun as a kid. And, um, again, Willis's music is great. And there is this one song in there that stuck with me since the dawn of time, and it's called, like, You Are the Pan. And it's basically used um, during the segment of the film where... um, Rufio draws that line in the sand and all the kids stand with him but there's that one kid who basically just looks through Peter's face and then realises that you know older Peter is the old um, you know younger Peter from like the days and then you have all the other kids looking at him and the way the music swells Mm. and builds and there are emotions there that trigger me every bloody time (laughs) Um, and the one other scene is when Peter basically picks like um his uh, new person to be the leader of the Lost Boys as he, you know, basically leaves. That song, again, has, like, two halves, but the way in which it's used in the end when he picks his, like, uh, you know, successor, essentially, good God, that music is God-tier, make me want to shed tears. I I mm. love it so much. <laughs> all right. Um, I, I, I got to rewatch Hook hearing, hearing all this. I, it's been... I think I was a literal child the last time I saw it, so it's been a while. <laughs> Believe me, like, you know, was it... I still find it delightful. I think right. um, I came to it at the right age, and again, Williams' mm-hmm. music is, like, one of the strongest, like, I've heard from him, like, you know, personally. And I'd say the only other entry I'd have that really resonated with me, which was stupidly hard, was trying to select one of the Star Wars films... Right, It'd be okay. like, you know, my go-to entry. Interestingly, I had one of the Star Wars' shortlisted two, but let's hear, hear yours first. Now, this was extremely difficult because I was trying to pick from stuff that I'd seen multiple times, stuff mm-hmm. that I love, and then stuff that's, like, you know, just objectively great. So right. this was really tough. I ended up going with Return of the Jedi because... Okay, okay. It was a really tough choice between that and Empire, but Return of the Jedi won it out for me just because I've seen that film countless more times than any other Star Wars film, I would mm. believe. I'd say fair enough, fair enough. that Phantom Menace and uh, Revenge of the Sith are like, you know, was it the Star Wars films I've seen like relentlessly to the point oh, where I know the music backwards and front, but <laughs> I think that movie wins it out for me just because I feel like it has a good balance between you know, having the more playful, exciting, adventurous side of things, but yeah. also some of the more darker, sinister material. Like, the Ewok theme, I love it. It's so cute and fun and mysterious. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. um, I also adore the music during the sequence where they 
they attack on like a Jabba's like a sail barge, and there's all the music going on between there. Mm. They're fighting everybody. Like you know, some people are getting eaten by the Sarlacc. That music is just pure adventure and super fun, and um, which is sort of the core of Star Wars, really. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. like you know, space western inspired by old serials. It's like yeah, you want those sort of like just pulpy adventure vibes in there. That's that's what you want. <laughs> And um, I love the Emperor's theme as well. Like, you know, whenever he's just there and you hear that choir in the background, mm, it's just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, they're so creepy. I don't like it. <laughs> but yeah, no, that film just brings like, you know, just the, you know, the inner kid in me out. So, okay. Yeah, my pick. Okay. So Return of the Jedi for yourself. Uh, funnily enough, um, I will preface this is, this is by no means my favorite Star Wars film overall, but favorite score for me might be Revenge of the Sith. Oh, yes. I'm so glad. (laughs) Like, I mean, obviously, as far as, you know, what the best Star Wars film is, it's like, for me, it's Empire. Like, like, I mean, I know, I know it's a cop-out answer, but like, it's so fucking good. (laughs) (laughs) It's just Empire is, I sort of put it in the same camp as like Mad Max Fury Road and Blade Runner, where it's like, yeah, this is sort of as close to perfect as sci-fi blockbusters get. So like, overall if we're talking the best and also my favourite Star Wars film, like Empire for my money. But if we're going purely in terms of score, then i got to say Revenge of the Sith takes the cake for me, because, I mean, I know... Okay, what's your honest opinion on the prequels? Because I know that they, for a while, they were kind of generally considered, you know, not good. Uh, in recent <laughs> years, they've had a bit of a renaissance, where, like, yeah. um, you know, I guess a lot of people around our age or slightly younger who grew up with them have been saying, like, no, they're actually good, and here's why. You, you even get some niches of film Twitter claiming that, like, Attack of the Clones is a misunderstood masterpiece, which, I'm sorry, no, that film is trash, <laughs> but, like, it's... <laughs> that film is, like, I mean, but, yeah. What's your honest opinion on the prequels? You can go film by film, if you like. Yeah, sure, so, um... <laughs> Phantom Menace, I I do like that film, regardless. I have loved that film a lot since I was nine years old and saw it in the cinema. Sure. Um, I love the music for that film. It's bloody great. I know that mm-hmm. everything about that film off by heart. I genuinely enjoy it. There's certain elements I would change, but in the grand scheme of things, I still think it's a solid film overall. Attack of the Clones is bad, but I find it hilarious because of the dialogue and the interaction between um, Anakin and Padme. That stuff... Is, don't like sand. <laughs> <laughs> the the scene where they're having that discussion in like that room next to the fire and like uh, Anakin's just like, if you're hurting as much as I am, please tell me. I die. I wish that I could just wish away my feelings. <laughs> same Anakin, oh, same. Man. <laughs> oh, it's, it's awful, but it's brilliant at the same time. I my do... my gripe with Attack of the Clones is like, I mean, putting the uh, Anakin and Padme cringe aside from it, it's like, how do you make what's essentially, like, an Obi-Wan-led space film noir, how do you make that subplot boring? Like, (laughs) it's like Blade Runner with Obi-Wan, that's fucking great. How how, how do you mess that up? (laughs) And there are certain elements of Attack of the Clones I will, like, you know, give credit. Like, I do like some of the extra worlds, like Kamino, some of the designs of, like, um, places like Geonosis and, like, seeing... You know, the base floor of places like Coruscant was pretty right, cool. Right. And the seismic charges from the space battle with Django Fett is one of the most gorgeous sound effects I've ever heard in my life. When those things drop, 
wow, that thing is delicious. It's it's like the THS logo on steroids. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. And um, when it comes to Revenge of the Sith, that was the film that I saw that with my friends in the cinema, and I love that film. It was like the first time for me that Star Wars felt dark and. Sure, uh, sure. You know, I got a little I mean, emotional. Like it, I mean, like, it is dark. Like, like, I mean, for me, Sith is the best of the prequels by a country mile. Like, oh, of course, yeah, yeah. Like, Phantom Menace is one is one where it's like, objectively, it's not very good, but it like for me, but like, there's there is a certain level of nostalgia attached to it, and a handful of scenes where it's like, okay, pod racing, good, Jewel of the Fates, good. Like, uh, some of the new worlds, like, sort of the underwater Gungan city, it's pretty cool, like, atmospherically, like, I like that, but, yeah, Phantom Menace is flawed and, oh, oh, it's time, but has a certain nostalgic appeal, um, Attack of the Clones, like, trash, (laughs) Um, (laughs) with, like, like I say, a couple of decent enough elements, like, Seismic Charges, yes, um, Christopher Lee, yes. Oh, yeah, of course. It's about it for me. <laughs> um, Revenge of the Sith is like, like I'm not going to act like it's, yeah, you do get some people who say it's a flat out masterpiece. Like, I wouldn't go that far. Like, there's still, like, there's still some sort of cringy dialogue, stilted acting, and kind of clunky moments that drag it down. But, like, I get what Lucas was trying to do with it. It, it, it is sort of a very much a Shakespearean tragedy space epic, and it's like, you, honestly, I think in some ways you could watch Revenge of the Sith without, I mean, I don't know, because like the prequels for, you know, for what they are, it is one, you know, cohesive ongoing story. Um, Sith, I think you could just sort of drop into uh, with, with, like, the briefest of context and just enjoy it as its own thing, more so than the other two, I think, uh, in the previous trilogy. Um, You definitely get more of a sense of the the sort of space opera, you know, tragic epic that Lucas wanted to make. And I think, you know, that was sort of the plan for the whole of the prequel trilogy, but it only really landed with Sith for me. And, like I said, not without its flaws, you know, some of the dialogue's clunky, and of course, like like anyone else, I've memed the shit out of that movie many a time. Uh, hello there, most notably. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it's... And, and yeah, like, I think the elements in it that work are definitely elevated by William's score. Like, he, he understood, I think, what Lucas wanted to do with it, and, you know, the... You know, yeah, the themes that he's got in there and just the moods that he evokes in certain scenes. Like, one of my favorite tracks is, I think it's called Padme's Ruminations. It's this very eerie, sort of understated track with kind of like falsetto choirs in there, very minor key. And I think in the film, if I remember right, it just sort of plays as, you know, Anakin and Padme are, they're separated, they're kind of staring out of windows, sort of you know, thinking about, you know, what's going on and what's happening. And and it's like, this is the moment where it's like, yeah, more so than any other scene in the film, that's where I sort of realised, okay, I see what Lucas's goal with this film was. Because that's where it's like the tragedy hits home and the, you know, you see, like, you know, the fall of the, fall of the Republic, the disintegration of Anakin and Padme's relationship. And, and yeah, it's... 
you know, Williams knew how to how to elevate kind of those sort of grand sort of operatic you know emotions to the whole thing, and, and it's like you know what, for whatever other flaws the film might have, like I I have no qualms with, with Williams' work on it, and I think it is the film's greatest strength. Really, yeah, like music. <laughs> That's like wonderfully put. I'd say the um, that scene between. Uh, Anakin and Padme with that music is like one of the strongest parts of that film, like bar oh, none. Sure. And I would also say the music during the uh, Order sixty six sequence where we see all the the uh, Ooh, Jedi yeah. purge essentially. That music was great. Truly, I th- yeah. Great. I think the track's called Anakin's Betrayal, isn't it? In that moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the way in which uh, Williams like repurposes like some of the tracks he's used from like obviously Phantom Menace, mm-hmm. and then like obviously. Um, a new hope when we get to the end when like uh he passes Luke off to uh Uncle Owen and Arthur Rue I'm just like good gravy um mm. the way in which he reshapes it because like it's always interesting when you have a composer who uses utilizing their own work again but repurposing yeah, it yeah. for like different scenes and stuff okay. and okay. it's perfectly done so well um the use of uh Door the Face with the fight between um Yoda and um uh Palpatine is so good I love it. Like, but yeah, um, I think that's pretty much all I have to say for like yeah. Williams because I still got well, like, been, many other people. Yeah, like, <laughs> we've, been, we've been talking about Williams a lot. I feel like we could do just a whole podcast episode on Williams alone, but like we got to move on to our other three. So yeah, okay. So if you go for your number two, sir. Okay. Well. Um, okay. So leading on from, well, since I was talking about you know evoking sort of high emotion and. You know, that kind of thing that Williams was able to do with Revenge of the Sith. Um, yeah. I guess, uh, well, for my next one, I'll go with a composer who I think is one of the best at evoking sort of emotions and, you know, feelings and a certain mood of a scene. Uh, and that is James Newton Howard. Ooh, so good. So he, he's done a lot, so it's difficult to know where to start. But for me, the, like, yeah. Okay. So I guess I'll start by going back to another childhood one for me that that I feel gets overlooked a lot when people talk about you know his scores, um, and that's uh, uh, the Disney film Dinosaur, which came out in two thousand. Like, I I haven't watched that film in years. Between the ages of like five and eight, it was my favorite film, um, and then I saw Jurassic Park at, at at the age of eight, and that became my favorite film for a while. I had a dinosaur phase as a kid. Can you tell? Um, oh yeah, I think we all did. Like any any people within our age, we pretty much like you know experienced that wholeheartedly. Right. So dinosaur, yeah, like. I don't know how the film would hold up now, and, you know, I've heard a few criticisms about it that I'm sure are fairly legit. Like, the main character's a bit of a blank slate. The story is just Moses with dinosaurs, basically. It's like, yeah, fair enough. Um, but, like, but yeah, I will say the James Newton Howard score, beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And one scene I always remember is, it's in the opening of the film. I want to say, like, the first five to ten minutes. Um... Yeah, it's when like the one egg survives the nest being trampled on by the Carnotaurus, and and you see sort of the egg, you know, traveling. Very, very unrealistic that that thing doesn't shatter at one point. <laughs> but like it's, but it's like when you're a kid, you don't care. It's like it's it's you know it's movie magic, and and so yeah, this thing 
you know, this egg just kind of goes on a journey and lands in the lemur's nest and then the plot proper starts. It's like, cool. Um, but yeah, it's, there's just this little, I want to say it's like a two minute segment where you see the journey of the egg from like, you know, I think sort of a little sort of egg munching dinosaur tries to steal it. Then, uh, over Raptor, if I remember, if I remember right, I'm trying to remember all my dinosaur names now. <laughs> so, over Raptor nicks it, um, fights, with another overraptor for it egg falls in the river um almost gets crushed by a couple of big dinos then a pteranodon swoops down snatches it up and then you have this like beautiful sw- like sweeping shot as the pteranodon sort of flies away with it like through like a field of brachiosauruses and and the score behind that is just i, th- I feel like there's something about having dinosaurs as part of your movie or show or whatever that just gives composers a lot of free reign to, to just do some cool shit because it's like dinosaurs, it's easy to forget that, you know, dinosaurs were actual things that existed. Like they're, they're almost mythical in a way to us. And they're just sort of these almost unfathomable, like giant creatures that like millions and millions of years ago did you know, rule everything. And so to kind of get that kind of scale and get that kind of wonder and just sort of with like a little bit of an air of mystery as well. Like I think a good composer can just do a lot with that. And both Williams and James Newton Howard, you know, definitely accomplish that. <laughs> yeah, man, that's wonderfully put. Like I actually rewatched the film like a few months ago. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> To be honest, it's actually still quite nice. I think okay, okay. we right. have, like, um, the... Uh, we have nostalgia on our side. Yes, so, like, the thing is, I'm not sure how it would hold up for, like, you know, um, certain people that are, like, maybe teenagers that are watching this for the first time or just didn't have that nostalgic attachment. I think children today will still get a kick out of it. The interesting thing is, watching it now and learning about how it was made, it totally blows the mind because... Watching that film as a kid, I thought it was one of the most stunning films I'd ever seen in my life. The use of CGI in that film was really great, but what I didn't know was that they had this technique where they implemented live-action footage on top of the CGI and then meshed them together. At the time, since it was, like, you know, so seamless, it was like, wow, this is, like, super realistic. I thought this was all, like, CGI, but it was actually, like, you know, a combination of really well use of uh, live action and CGI. Watching it on like a HD TV now, you can see the difference in like, you know, where the visual right, effects start sure, and like sure. where the live action stuff stops, but the score still holds up immensely well. It's god tier. Like, that introductory Honestly, sequence, which um, was funnily enough used as the trailer for the film. Yes. I think it was used in like, yeah, I think it was used in sort of like Disney promotional material a lot too back in the day. Just kind of, if you ever had whatever, I'm sure like me, you had a handful of Disney movies on VHS as a kid and there would always be sort of a trailer for Disney as a whole. And that would just be like, it'd be like a highlight reel of like Peter Pan and, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, the Jungle Book, the Lion King, whatever. And, I think on one of those trailers, they had that piece, which plays when the Tyrannodon's flying around with the egg, you know. Yeah, and just, like, that more so than a lot of other 
bits of film score that that is just childhood music to me like it's it's wonderful and there's Definitely. there's some like intense pieces later on too like you know the raptor chase and, and the you know carnotaurs like you know sort of sneak into the cave it's like yeah you've got some kind of horror movie sounds going on here <laughs> yeah man stuff gets intense especially once they get into the cave and like the final battle with the uh carnotaur as well is mm-hmm. Still tense, man. Like, um, I go back to my childhood in a way, and I'm just like, cool, man. I remember what I couldn't stand watching stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Like, it's... She was scary. Like, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like I was, you know, kind of like... Once I was conditioned enough to that, I think that's the point where my parents were like, okay, now you're ready for Jurassic Park. Well, let's, let's sort of let this settle for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Which, nice. you know, fair enough. I don't blame them. Um, mm. But, um, yeah, speaking of intense, though, like, uh, you know, obviously... James Newton Howard, he's done plenty of sort of more, I don't, I don't want to say more legit films, because, like, you know, you know, you know, children's films and animation are perfectly legit in their own way, but, like, more kind of, you know, serious sort of adult sort of focused films as well. Yeah. Um, another one of my favourite scores of his, which definitely hits those intense buttons when it wants to, is Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, um, so good. One of my favourite films of all time, um, one of the biggest Academy snubs ever, in my opinion. How Jim Hall didn't even get nominated for Best Actor is beyond me, but that's another discussion for another time. Um, <laughs> what's so fascinating about Nightcrawler as a film, and the way it's scored as well, it definitely elevates this, is effectively it is, it is kind of a rags-to-riches story, uh, you know, sort of underdog, you know, rising up, making his mark in the world kind of story, and... And yeah, it just so happens that the underdog that we're sort of, I guess, by virtue of seeing everything through through his perspective, encouraged to root for, just so happens the guy's a sociopath. And yeah. and you know, I'll, I'll keep this fairly spoiler free in case any of your listeners haven't seen Nightcrawler, but like, do it's severely underrated. I think like most people I know who have seen it really like it. Um, but, like, it doesn't get the attention it deserves, and it's definitely worth checking out. So, yeah. But, like I said, keep things spoiler-free for benefit of anyone who hasn't seen it, but yeah. So, yeah, the main character is someone who has got Lou Bloom, the main character played by Jake Gyllenhaal. He's sort of trying to trying to make his mark in something. Like, he's not really sure what. And he finds the niche of... Uh, sort of TV news and specifically, uh, you know, filming crime scenes and sort of realised that this is something that he's pretty good at and can make an impression in. And so, yeah, you follow him on his on his journey, if you like, as he's sort of building his building his business, trying to establish himself and everything. And so a lot of the Scott, like I often put the Nightcrawler soundtrack on when I'm trying to be productive with something. I'll just kind of have it on the background because it is like some of the stuff that plays over the, like the montages where he's going through all of his camera footage and so on, organizing everything. It is sort of very kind of sort of motivational and kind of keeps that rhythm going. But there's always, much like the main character, there's always something not quite right. There's always that underlying unease to the whole thing. Because like we, we're never given sort of a full diagnosis to Jim Hall's character, really, but it's it's safe to say he's a sociopath, really, and just has you know doesn't quite get people, has basically zero empathy, and yeah, so it's like 
you know, while well, you sort of, by virtue of seeing things from his perspective, you are, for a lot of the film, kind of curious to see where it's going, and curious to see, like, ooh, will he make it? It's like, after a point, you're just like, oh, God, I'm... I, I want to watch, but I I can't. Uh, it, it's much you know, much like the stuff he's filming. It's 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 like watching a car crash. It's like it's horrible, but you can't look away. And and yeah, the score is just. I mean, it kind of nailed. I mean, I don't, I've never been to LA, but I imagine when I think of what you know, nighttime LA is probably like. I imagine it being scored. <laughs> I imagine it's set to like James Newton Howard's score for Nightcrawler, and it just sort of. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's difficult to say too much without getting spoilers, but it's a score that kind of perfectly encapsulates its main character and the overriding tone of the film, where it's like, there's some stuff in there that's... I mean, it, it's compelling as all hell, but you're also kind of... You're both anticipating and dreading like how things are going to proceed. <laughs> Yeah, no. Um, that was perfectly summarised. Like Nightcrawler, I think, was in the top five films mm. of 2014 for me. I saw that film and I was floored. I don't mm-hmm. think there's many films that's ever left that much of an impact on me. And the score is definitely like you know one of the key uh, contributors mm-hmm. to that. The way in which like sometimes you have these sort of uplifting moments, like juxtaposed against like some stuff happening on screen i'm like these shouldn't work together but no. the way in which like it's constructed it's just like there is something oddly fitting about it it is because you're seeing everything from lou's perspective it's it's like you know yes no matter how horrible this might be to us this is a victory for him <laughs> yeah yeah it's <laughs> really good did you have any other like uh scores you wanted to highlight for uh mr howard uh, there's plenty I could talk about, but we but we we got to move yeah. on. Um, I'll rapid fire like Unbreakable, Batman Begins. Um, oh, those are my main two. Um, I'm sure there's others. I'm Legend. I think I think he did that one. Um, hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I'll just <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, I could I, again. We, we, I could go on, but I'll let you do your second one. <laughs> All right, cool. So my second one is. Um, for a composer who has definitely started to get noticed now in the last couple of years. Um, he's been scoring things for a good while, but I would say in the last five to ten, he's started to become a name that people are like getting more familiar with, and that's uh, Michael Giacchino. Yes, yes. Now, <laughs> Michael Giacchino, he's been making music for a while, but the first film I really noticed his music in was uh, Star Trek from 2009. Now... Uh-huh. I know that in the mind of a lot of, like, uh, Trekkie fans, like, they hate the film. It's obviously, like, you know, a slap in the face to the style and, like, um, structure of the old TV shows. Uh, the only reason I, like, you know, was it don't hate on it so much is, one, I'm not hardcore Trekkie. Sure, I would say, yeah. like, um, my uh, ties to the Star Trek franchise mainly lie in, like, uh, Next Generation of Voyager, um, and that's because my dad used to watch it. Um, uh, I, 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 I rate Next Gen really highly, I will say. <laughs> yeah, but I would say the cool thing for me, uh, why I appreciate it about like, uh, Abrams is that he just shot some life into it because yeah. the Star Trek franchise at that point was like, you know, pretty dead and I don't remember that many people that liked Enterprise at the time. So, um, you know, this film came along and I thought it was a pretty solid origin story. They created a parallel universe of certain mm-hmm. things like, you know, you could get away with saying that this isn't like, you know, exactly how you got from point A to like, you know, the 1960s TV show. Um, gotcha. But I 
I would say the best element of that film was the music by far. This was one of the films that made me notice film, like, you know, uh, film soundtracks and, like, film scores and stuff like that. Because there's, like, straight from the time that the film begins, there's a nice sort of um, eerie yet hopeful sound to it. Mm -hmm. And um, that's on the uh, actual film score um, soundtrack itself. It's the first track called Star Trek. It's only just over a minute long. And right. it's just like, um, it has a slowed down version of what would be the film's main theme, Enterprising Young Men, but it's in a slower, more calm tone. But as it goes on, it sort of just like builds and builds and then has this really sharp, like, you know, was it crazy noise that like, uh, introduces to, to the movie before the Romulans show up. Right. Um, and this film stands out to me because it has such a sense of adventure and a boombastic like intensity to it. So when the fight between the Romulans is happening or like uh they go to Spock's planet and it's being like, you know, shot into before they drop the dark matter and um you have like uh the fight between um Sulu and like um the other dude while they're on that crazy uh Criminy. It's like they're on that platform where they're shooting the uh, laser into the planet, and mm-hmm. uh, the music is just like so fun and intense. But I mainly love the film for um, its use of the theme "Enterprising Young Men," which is used when um, Kirk and Bones is um, going from the transport ship to the uh, Enterprise. And that theme is one of my all-time favorite things in the history of existence. It's just the way it nice. starts. It's like, boom, 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 boom. And it just builds and builds. And then it's just like, when it drops that main theme, it's like, boom, 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 boom. It's like, it's created its own new theme song. And the Star Trek TV shows are pretty notable for having their own unique theme songs that it's like, you know, pretty much stuck out through the years. Whether you talk about yeah. the 1960s show, the uh, Next Generation, Voyager... Um, I'm not sure about Deep Space Nine because I don't really remember the intro for that show too well, but I would say Enterprising Young Men is a really great addition to, like, you know, the Star Wars, like, you know, set of music. Star Trek. Oh, God, I did it. I did it. Oh, no. No. (laughs) Oh, I'm cancelled already. (laughs) But, yeah. um, It's going to come gunning for you, man. (laughs) I'm ready. I'm ready to be cooked, man. I've done it on numerous occasions. I think I had Star Wars on the mind because... We were talking about John Williams earlier. Oh, no, it's mainly because since J.J. Uh, Abrams, like, uh, when watching that film, you can feel, like, more of a Star Wars element right. to it. yeah. I get so it, yeah. then when and he course, ends up getting Star Wars, you know, for yes. The Force Awakens later on, it's like, okay, yeah, this definitely makes sense. But, yeah, the Star Trek film score is so delightful, and it I, also has a lot of really good quiet moments as well. Um, like when Spock is with his uh, people on Vulcan or mm. like has his moments with his mum or the end credits theme, uh, which is like, you know, a rejuvenated version of the 1960 theme song is done with such a pizzazz. It's just like, ooh, this is yeah. so nice. <laughs> it's, not the first, it's not the first time Jacino uh, has done that either. I remember the first time seeing Spider-Man Homecoming in, in the cinema. Like it opens with an orchestral version of the 60s theme over the Marvel logo, it's like, like, do-do-do-do-do-do-do. And I'm like, okay, I'm into this. <laughs> uh, that was, like, one of the most happiest moments I've had in the cinema. I watched that in IMAX with my friends, and I was just like, I have always wanted to hear a version of that theme. And the way in which he did it, I'm like, 
Jakina, you got it. <laughs> oh, I, I'm, so you know, Jory's out on, because um, he's doing the score for the Batman as well. The Matt yeah. Reeves directed, Robert Pattinson starring. Um, I'm sure this is no surprise to you, one of my most anticipated upcoming movies. Um, God, if he can find a way to do an epic orchestral version of the 60s Batman theme, I will give him all the credit in the world. Oh, like, man, that would be scary. <laughs> scary talent. <laughs> I will... You know what? I believe in him. I, be, I believe in most people involved in that film. Like, there's... Yeah, but... Yeah, we've got to keep on track. Composers. Yeah. <laughs> so I would say the other two... Um, I could talk about so many of his film scores, mm. whether we're talking mm. about like uh, his work with Pixar... Um, in numerous different departments. I would say, if I was talking about that one, my next film on that list would be The Incredibles. Um, I love, love that music. Because I never got to see uh, The Incredibles during, like, 2004 in its original run. I didn't see it until, I think, maybe 2008 or 2009. So, um, because there was a, you know, there was a certain period where Pixar was just on a roll, releasing film after film after film, but there was a massive period between i'd say toy story 2 to um wally where i just didn't see anything in between those so i didn't see a lot of those until you know much later on when they were airing on like say bbc one because you know sometimes pixar films end up on there on numerous occasions but as an older person who was studying like you know media production by that point i ended up coming back to the film and i'm like oh my god the music in this film is glorious um the main Incredibles theme song is gorgeous but i would say my favorite theme by far is the music that plays when dash is on the move like you know yes. running away from like you know his enemies when he starts they, when he realizes realize he can run, run on water yes yeah. oh yeah. my god i have yeah. ever felt so much uh. in my life it has that sort <laughs> oh, of man. old school like 60s um sort of action spy thriller like uh elements to it but yeah. it's just so bombastic and you know, in your face. It's the, so the whole good. film's kind of like that, because I think it's sort of supposed to be set in sort of an alternate, sort of retro-futuristic version of the 60s. Um, and that very much in keeping with sort of old, sort of sci-fi superhero comics and, like, kind of classic Bond and that and that kind of thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, the score is just perfect for that kind of era and tone. You know, you've got sort of the combination of, like, the orchestral elements and the more kind of jazzy horns and everything, like, ah, no. Incredibles is maybe my favourite animated film of all time, so we could... I'm glad. I could go on. I could go on. (laughs) I know, I know. I think I may have to have you back for when I have another discussion on those those films specifically. Um, And I will say that my other entry is another sort of spy-influenced, like, film, which was... uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Like, right. his score for that film was... Everything he likes working with Brad Bird. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> I was... Because um, after, uh, was it the first three Mission Impossible films, I hadn't seen any of those. I think, actually, no, tell a lie, I'd seen Mission Impossible 2 because that right. was the, one of those films that ended up on TV like 50,000 times over like gotcha. the last few years. But... When I heard that it was Brad Bird that was going to be coming on to helm his first like live action film, I was like, "Okay, I trust you. You've yeah. not let me down yet." I, you know, from the time Iron Giant came out, I'm like, "This man, he has me. He has me already." So he's done great in the animation world, and I'm pretty sure he's going to kill it. And he did. And the film score was so jazzy. Mm-hmm. And again, the word I like to use for a lot of uh, 
Chikino's music is bombastic. There's just yeah, an energy, like, he's like a, you know, a firecracker. He's like someone that just threw a bomb in a room and it just exploded with brilliant sound. Everything about his it's music. Very visual is, and I like it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Obviously, no one's getting hurt in this. Like, you know, we're all enjoying, like, you know, the explosion. Like, no one's getting hurt. But <laughs> I think he just infuses, like, um, especially this franchise with, like, so much energy. And while he did the film score for number three, I feel like this is the one where he, like, really just, like, you know, knocked the doors down and just yeah. gave so much life to it. And by this point, obviously, we'd heard at least three iterations of, like, the Mission Impossible theme song beforehand. But this one was, like, my favorite. It was so fun, so energetic. And, you know, from the moments in Dubai to the um, scenes at the Kremlin to the other segment towards the latter side of the film where they're in the, what, machine area where there's all the cars and stuff and... They're trying to get the briefcase, the music there. So good. Oh, I love it. So much. All right. All right. Yeah, no, Chikino is he, he's sort of a little bit of an underdog for a while, but he's he's been he's been becoming more prominent the, the last few years, and I'm you know, I'm glad because the dude's damn talented, and hopefully, you know, like the Batman might sort of just bump him up another level because it's like you, know, you think of like a lot of really legit composers have, have worked on Batman at some point. You know, you had Danny Elfman, you've had James Newton Howard, Hans Zimmer. It's like, yeah, it's if you put Michael Giacchino in the same camp as them, that'll give him some street cred in, oh, in the yeah, film definitely. composer world. So, fingers crossed. And I'm I'm hopeful because, like, since he's worked with Matt Reeves on the uh, previous Planet, Planet of the Apes, yeah. his music for those films really inserted, like, a emotional gravitas that... Loki, one of the most underrated helps. trilogies ever, by the way. Like, oh, no doubt. In the same camp as, like, Back to the Future and Lord of the Rings. Like, honestly, that's I think so there's good. a lot of hatred towards apes or something. People just don't like them. I don't know. <laughs> hey, why? <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you don't know how many people I've talked to is like, oh, yeah, you've seen any of the Planet of the Apes films? They're really good. It's like, oh, there's ape movies. Oh, I don't care about those. I'm like, why? Why do you have to be this way? <laughs> Are you like this? <laughs> Oh, man, I could go on about so many more of his themes, but I'll, I'll have to move on. So if you hit me with your number three, sir. So my number three, um, okay. Um, got two left. What's the most natural lead on from that? Um, okay, well, I guess if we're going with composers who've come more into prominence recently, then um, then I will go with... Uh, with now, I apologise in advance. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of her name, I'm almost certain, because... Um, uh, name's Icelandic, I believe, but um, this lady, very talented lady, is Hilda Guanadotia. Um, now, if I'm, again, not sure if I pronounced that right, I apologise if I didn't, but regardless, she had a very, very good 2019 when she composed the scores for both Chernobyl, the HBO miniseries, and Joker. And, like, if you look on her Spotify, like, uh, they, most stuff before that is more kind of original albums and stuff like that. So it's oh, okay. only, so, so it's only really very recently that she's come more into prominence in the film TV world. But I hope she gets more work. She is phenomenal. And, like, you, you, like, say what you will about Joker. Like, I know it's kind of a divisive movie. Um, but I think most people can agree that the two Oscar wins it did bag in the end, which were, Best actor for my boy Joaquin and best original score for Hilda, both well deserved. Like, 
yeah, those were of all the, the awards that film could have won, those were the two where it's like, okay, yeah. And the interesting thing about that is that was one of the rare occasions where she did a lot of her compositions before the film was actually shot and edited. Mm. So, which is usually, it's usually the total reverse of that. You know, usually mm. like, you know, the film's shot, then goes through post-production, you picture lock it, and then that goes off to the sound team and the composer. Um, but in this case... It was like no, she sort of composed a lot of the, a lot of the music, you know, sort of either before it was shot or as it was being shot. I'm not entirely sure which, but you know, she obviously had a very clear idea in her head of what this film should sound like, and and it really works though because like it, this is, I mean, both with Joker and Chernobyl, like these are, I mean, it's it's a very heavy sound, like to to both to both things because you know it's a lot of sort of you know sort of very low very low note like cellos and sort of somber strings and sort of pounding percussion like that kind of thing it's very moody and very intense and it's it like the music almost becomes its own character and yeah and sort of uh, so kind of similar to what we were saying earlier with john williams it's like you they become synonymous with their respective piece of media. Like, you can't imagine one without the other. Like, particularly Joker, uh, for me, it's like, you know, you can't, you know, certain tracks on that, like the bathroom dance and sort of, you know, the the track that's just called Call Me Joker, like at the end when he's standing on top of the cop car. Like, that score, like, it gives it a certain level of intensity and just sort of, like, wraps you up in in the character's frame of mind, which is obviously not a very comfortable frame of mind to be in, you know, you're watching a mm-hmm. joke origin story, it's going to be pretty pretty bleak and you're going to be you know, in the headspace of a fairly monstrous person, but like, I was fortunate enough the first time I saw Joker to catch it to catch a 70mm screening at, um, at sort of one of my one of sort of the local like uh, this was back when cinemas was still a thing. Um, yeah, an eternity ago now. Yeah, but it was, um, I think it was Picture House Central, like just off Leicester Square in London. And um, yeah, they were doing a handful of 70 mil screenings. And my flatmate and I went, went to catch Joker on a on a weekend. It might have been a Friday night, whatever the case. And and yeah, definitely kind of a 70 mil added a certain sort of, like visual aesthetic to it, what with the, you know the kind of late seventies, early eighties setting, kind of very much made it feel quite Scorsese esque. Um, and but you know, I, I don't, I'm not a te- sort of technical expert in that way, so I have no idea what speakers they were using. But <laughs> the the speakers match the screen, put it that way. It's um, you know like the, the and you just and you got just these heavy bassy sounds kind of booming out, just sort of wrapping you in. Arthur Fleck's world and it's just yeah like the music and, and in Chernobyl as well you know because obviously you know that and the, what makes Chernobyl even more terrifying is that you know it, it's a real thing that happened and still has ramifications today and, yeah. and so you know just adding that kind of heavy pounding just immersive score to it just sort of wraps you up in just the dread that would surround a disaster like that. And, yeah, it, it's it's difficult to sort of, you know, I, I'm, I'm not 
smart or technically minded enough to, to go into intricacies of it. But it's just, in both those cases, you know, her score just becomes its own whole character in the piece and just elevates everything to a new level. And, yeah. <laughs> Not always a very nice level, but it's, you know, definitely works for for what for what they are <laughs> no definitely like um and just to uh you know piggyback off of those thoughts like i haven't seen joker since its release i didn't feel the need to watch it again after the first time but now i'm a little curious to see what it would be to what it'd be like to watch it having had that whole hype surrounding the film die down and yeah. having to you know watch it with like a second pair of eyes because i found the film initially like you know was it oddly disturbing because for as much as it was exactly what I expected, there was a few aspects to it that I didn't expect. Okay. And um, I still, I'd say there were certain elements of it where the scene where he's on the train with those dudes and they're bugging that woman and yeah. you're just thinking, okay, is he going to do something? Is he not going to do something? And then when he does what he does and then he just leaves and then, you know, goes to the bathroom and then does his like whimsical dance for a while. Yeah. I was wondering whether that was in his mind or if that was actually like, you know, coming to pass because this film does play a little bit with like, you know, his perception of reality. Oh, that's the thing. Like it's, it's an entirely bar, like maybe two scenes. It's an entirely first person movie. So you can read it a number of ways in regards to what happened, what didn't, etc. Um, sort of my 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 personal reading of it is that it's you know sort of Joker a few years later telling this origin story to his therapist, and that's why you know in some cases things are in some cases like melodramatically awful things happen to him, and is just trying to elicit sympathy. Yeah, I, I, I just sort of. I sometimes sort of imagine it like a line in, in Logan uh, where, you know, Logan, Wolverine, whatever you want to call him, he's looking over the X-Men comic book and he goes, maybe a quarter of it happened and not like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I sort of imagine it a little bit like that or like the line from the Killing Joke comic when, you know, Joker says, if I'm going to have a pass, I prefer it to be multiple choice. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's like, yeah, you, know, you can read it in a number of different ways in regards to what actually happened, what didn't. Is it just a straightforward narrative? Is it entirely fabricated? Did some of it happen? Did some not? It, there's a lot of ways you can read it, but yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would still say that the music was definitely like probably my favorite element of the film, just because I'd say the best way for me to describe it would be atmospheric. Sure. The uh, way yeah. the way in which that film just envelops everything in the movie it has its fingers and like you know just tentacles whatever you want to call it just slathered all over the place mm. and you feel everything from like you know was it the sort of i guess emotional highs and then the lows mm. mostly lows yeah yeah pretty much <laughs> i mean it feels like you're literally just in the darkest of sewers where there is literally barely any light passing through it's probably an apt metaphor for what the Joker's psyche is like to be wrapped up in. <laughs> and yeah, like that film score is definitely like one of the sort of things that, even though I haven't seen the film for a while, some of those like um, moments still resonate with me, and the sound is still there. So I want to give it another check out and see what's going yeah. on. Yeah, or, or just listen to the score, like <laughs> on, on Spotify. That, there is that. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't like the film, you know, it's fine. Like I, I personally, I really like it, but I get why. Some people just couldn't get behind it. 
whether it be it's too disturbing or the screenplay's diet Scorsese or whatever. It's like, it's, I I really like it, but I get the criticisms and issues people have with it. <clears throat> yeah. All right. Um, so I guess composer three for you. Yeah, my number three. And uh, this is another generic-ish choice. No, He's in the conversation a lot, but it's kind of hard for me not to put him on list. Got to be my boy Hans Zimmer. Right, yeah, of course. He actually didn't make my top four, but he would have been a worthy runner-up. <laughs> it was so hard to like pick, uh, narrow it down to very specific film scores for him because... Uh, Zimmer's done so much. Like he's, you'd start trying to look up his scores, and it's just a rabbit hole. Like yeah, he like, did the Dark Knight the same year he did Madagascar too. Like come on now. <laughs> it's scary how varied his talent is because for a lot of his film scores that do have like um, notable motifs that you can notice between films, there's a lot of them where it's just like he did this. No way, you lying. So. For me, like, um, certain films like, uh, The Road to El Dorado, which is like one of my favorite films from childhood, I didn't know he was involved with that, so I was like, nah, sharp. Um, but I would say my first entry on the list is probably one that not many people are aware of. It's the, um, DreamWorks film from 97, I believe, called The Prince of Egypt. It's one oh, of my yeah. all time nice. favorite nice. films. And the reason I say it's underrated is because the amount of times you have conversations about animated films, whether it be 2D, 3D, or otherwise, mm-hmm. and this film seems to be completely dismissed. Prince, or of, at least- Prince of Egypt's great. Like, wh- whether or not you're religious, it's just a fucking great story. Uh, it's told very well. Like <laughs> It has, like, one of the most incredible voice casts I've ever seen put together, but it's mm-hmm. use of 2D and 3D animation collectively, along with just re- really solid direction, it's like one of the best Bible stories ever, you know, adapted in my opinion. But yeah, I'll second that, that. That film score is incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, from mm-hmm. the songs to the actual, like, you know, just music on its own, the way in which it's constructed has such an intensity to it that anything from, you know, the multiple deaths in different forms, whether we're talking about like, um, you know, the flood to the moment where like all the firstborn kids, like, you know, get wiped out or, um, the chase sequence at the start of the film with, um, Ramses and Moses before he like, you know, leaves and then goes out to the desert and like finds his whole new life or the music that plays when he's talking to God in the burning bush. Oh God. There's a lot like that's <laughs> no, I, I agree. Like that film doesn't get the love it deserves, and like I said, I think you can go into it being entirely secular, you know, agnostic, atheist, whatever, and still just enjoy it on an animation storytelling narrative basis because it's just it's just an excellent story with you know, like I say, great animation, great cast, and great score. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'll second that. Another animated film from him, which is a little bit more notable. You, you might have heard of this one. It's called The Lion King. Um, that's a bit that's a bit niche for me. Sorry. I would say The Lion King was probably the first animated film which made me notice music. Because sure. um, okay. Okay. the sequence where poor old Simba is running away from that crazy stampede I have never felt music literally hit my head as much as that. 
because you know you see like you know Zazu flying all around trying to find him and like you know uh, Mufasa and Scar are running to go out and see what's going on intensity times 10,000 mm-hmm. the definition of epic I would slap on that film with like the biggest like I don't know sticker you could find I have never felt more as a child watching that film for like numerous different reasons it's just the way in which the music like works with the stuff on screen to elicit emotions like I'm not sure if I ever cried during that film I'd probably be lying if I'd said I didn't but you'd probably be lying uh, uh, <laughs> get off my <laughs> podcast you can go away now the podcast episode is over thank you for listening ladies and gentlemen no, yes yeah, fair enough I <laughs> <laughs> oh dear anyway continue but yeah no um I love the music for the film whether it's like obviously the vocal tracks from Circle Life to my personal favorite like you know Be Prepared one of the most amazing songs which no one talks about one of the best villain songs ever, yeah. Yeah, God oh, tier, God tier, man. So, I... Side note, we've got to do an episode on best villain songs sometime. Oh, hell yes. I will have you back. It's been documented, ladies and gentlemen, here. Like, you know, you heard it first, but... <laughs> I Yeah, I... I just maybe maybe some Tim Curry up in there. Just, just, just Ooh. tease that. Ooh, that, okay, that okay. Man, the man was in Fern Gully and made sentient pollution sexy. I don't know how he did it, but... <laughs> <laughs> It's a lot of things sexy, man. He's, he's a different kind of, like, beast altogether. It's um, powerful. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I would say just to wrap it up, like, you know, Lion King is just pure magic. There's no oh, yeah. film scores that can, like, you know, elicit those kind of emotions in that kind of way. But it's, it just speaks to Zimmer's power. Yeah. I mean, it's still one of my favorite films. It was one of my favorites as a kid. Still in my top 50 now. Like, it's... It's so good, like, <laughs> and yeah, it is definitely, yeah, you know, you're talking, you know, slapping a big epic sticker on it, like, yeah, I can't think of many animated films that nail that sort of epic feeling as much as The Lion King, and Zimmer's score is a big part of that. And I would say my last um, entry for Zimmer, which was really tough, um, because there were so many other ones I wanted to highlight, like, you know, Gladiator, his work on the Sherlock Holmes films, <laughs> and obviously the Batman series, but... I had to leave those out because there is one film score which is so generic now, but it's been one of my favorite things for the last 11 years. Of course, you had to put Inception on the bloody list. Boo! Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, man. I, I have never fallen in love with a film score so quickly in my life. Dream is Collapsing is one of my all-time favorite pieces of music ever. After that film came Fair out, enough. I yeah, listened yeah. to that for weeks and weeks and weeks. I mean... I've watched that film four times in the cinema, and at that point, I'd never seen a film more so than I think maybe two or three. So I I was in love with that movie that year. It was a good time for me. But that film just has an intensity and epicness and just a feeling of the sky is falling on you. That's the way I would yeah, describe yeah. that film score. It's, well, the it's just collapsing, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> it just has a really great sense of energy to it but it also has a lot of really good quiet moments like uh one of my favorite moments is when you find out about what really happened when Cobb used Inception for the first time and you find out what he did to Maul and uh right right, yeah you find out that they have been stuck inside of their little world for like you know 50 years I'm like oh my god man it makes everything hit so much heavier 
And then obviously there's a lot of people that talk about time. Obviously the final track yeah. of the film, which is one of the most powerful themes, which builds, but then just ends on almost a whimper, which is really great. Which is uh, very fitting with how the film ends, that final shot. Yeah. Which is yeah. just kind of, it probably, probably makes most people kind of whimper or groan the first time they see it. It's just like, <laughs> okay, is the top going to, ah! <laughs> But yeah, I mean, my favorite track. I mean, I, I I love a good open ending, so like that was that was great. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally understand. Um, I'd say obviously, time is great. The dream is collapsing is great. But I would also say my other favorite song from the soundtrack would be Mombasa because okay, yeah, that was like a really fun uh, chase sequence, seeing how that whole thing went down and. I just like how high energy it is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and just the moments where you can just stop, breathe and then like pick it up again. Like in the film where <laughs> Cobb attempts to like, you know, try to blend in when he's in that shop and he's like, one cafe, one cafe. And I'm like, mate, it's not going to work, man. You're <laughs> <laughs> and then when he's just trying to fit through that stupidly narrow, like, you know, is it bit with the buildings? I'm like, dude, no. Why did you do this? He's a squeezing his way through i'm like if that was me i probably would have gotten stuck i don't like this at all it makes me feel very uncomfortable but yeah claustrophobic scenes get to me too it's like uh, (laughs) but yeah like the tensest part of alien for me is when they're crawling through the air vents Ooh. partially because i know the jump scare that's coming too but even so it's like uh. yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah no that's that's a good call um, but yeah, I would say of all the music I listen to from like uh, any film, I would say that's probably my most replayed because I've listened to like that. Yeah, I've listened to The Dream is Collapsing and, um, you know, Mombasa like stupid amounts of time. Mm-hmm. Like, I'd say Inception was probably like the first film score that I started listening to, like, you know, while I was on the move, like because I was uh, at uni the year afterwards. So I listened to a lot of Hans Zimmer while I was walking around to and from uh <laughs> uni and stuff so I'm just like yeah man sometimes I'm on the move and I'm listening to them on bus I'm like yeah I'm gonna run and go catch a train like <laughs> so I get you. I get you. <laughs> so yeah that, that'd be my third man okay um, well yeah it figured Zimmer would show up on here at one point or another it'd be it'd be a disservice if he didn't I mean I think the only reason he didn't crack my top four is because it like I said it was just too much of a rabbit hole for, for me to go down like okay if I pick Zimmer I've got to narrow it down to two or three scores and I just couldn't do it like <laughs> and yeah. I, th- I figured you'd mention him anyway so it's like okay we'll be covered for Zimmer content <laughs> it, but it's, it's surprising the stuff he shows up in you know you get him you know he did the score for like you know Wallace and Gromit Curse of the Were-Rabbit you know that was him um, and then yes. like I said Madagascar 2 or Madagascar Escape to Africa which <laughs> am- amusingly yes done in the same year he did The Dark Knight and <laughs> and you know I re-watched Madagascar 2 at one point last year with, with, with my flatmate just for shits and giggles and we you know the it has maybe my favourite film credit ever uh, at the end, at the end when the credits going past. It's like songs by Will I Am and Hans Zimmer. It's like I, <laughs> it's the, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, <laughs> and it's and, it's, and of course you know you imagine because of course Will I Am did the you know the big and chunky song when Moto Moto emerges from the water. And it's like you, I just amuse myself to no end imagining Zimmer just composing that percussion for that. <laughs> Chunky. It's like, yeah, man's got range. You, you can't say he doesn't have range. <laughs> no doubt, man. But, 
but yes, definitely, definitely vouch for, you know, a lot, lot of animation he's done. So, like, yeah, honestly, Wallace and Gromit Curse of the Were Rabbit, like, it's great. Like, I, I unironically say that might also be one of my favorite films. And, yeah, Prince of Egypt and Lion King obviously gets the epic scale down for that. You know me, it's always going to come back to Batman in some way, but the Dark Knight <laughs> trilogy, I mean, he, he, I would argue he and James Newton Howard sort of, like, they kind of share a lot of the credit for, for, for those films. I, I think, I think the Dark Knight Rises was sort of almost exclusively Zimmer, but like, they were definitely, yeah. the two of them were very collaborative on both Begins and the Dark Knight, so, but yeah, like I said, we could go down a whole other rabbit hole with Zimmer, but we we both got one more composer each. So, right, if you remember before, yeah. <laughs> right. So my fourth and final, um, I got uh, slightly niche, but uh, I think most people who are into film score in some capacity will know him, and that's uh, Clint Mansell. Ooh, ooh, nice. So he is. For me, like, if you want just very haunting melodies that will stick with you with all the feelings and emotions that they evoke in the context of the film, look no further, because you got Moon, which is low-key one of the best sci-fi movies ever made. Um, I love that score. So good. You got... Um, that's another one that I put up with Nightcrawler as, like, scores to put on in the background while I'm working. Um, you know, that, that really gets sort of... Some very motivational tracks in there, I find, especially yeah. like the first one, Welcome to Lunar Industries, that's sort of got like the... Like, yeah, it's great. Um, and then, yeah, basically everything Darren Aronofsky's done. Um, you know, oh, like yeah. um, Requiem for a Dream being the obvious one. Um, we talked about that in the last episode. Yeah, <laughs> I on. And, and The Wrestler as well, which is my favourite Aronofsky film, um, one of my all-time favourites in general. Um it's interesting because the wrestler's a film like it's generally very light on score, but there is the main theme that comes back, and it's very, very haunting, very memorable, very evocative of the main character, and yeah. with with guitar work by Slash from Guns N' Roses as well, which is so nice. Yeah, yeah, it's just like I say, you just got just haunting melodies that just kind of again, much like a lot of the stuff we've covered already it's just just become very synonymous with those characters those stories those films and you can't imagine one without the other yeah. it's like requiem for a dream you know as as harrowing an experience as that film is you know it, it like it would not be would not be the same without the score and and yes the the requiem for a dream theme has since been overused uh, in a lot of things you touched on that the last time we discussed the film <laughs> but it's uh and I won't dispute it, but like I, I, we we cannot deny like the power it has in its original context. And, oh, definitely! Like it's yeah. so emotionally effective. Like you know, it like really resonates with you like throughout the film and sort of sticks with you after it's over. And Moon, li- likewise, you know, it's um, albeit not quite as intense, but like emotionally and psychologically, that's a pretty devastating film when it wants to be. And yeah, and like. You know, you just you just feel like Sam Rockwell's character. You just feel his isolation. You feel his grief. You feel him kind of grappling with his with his identity and entails. Mm. It's just it's it's a lot, but Mansell's score just bumps it up a notch. And 
There's the scene where he's... I won't spoil too much for anyone who hasn't seen it, but there's the scene where he's talking to the ship's computer and he sort of comes to a revelation and just sort of leans against the wall and goes quiet. The score in that scene just, like, drips. Just absolute despair. (laughs) Yeah. Sort of feel what he's feeling. It's like... Oof. <laughs> yeah, man, that film was pretty heavy. Um, mm-hmm. I rewatched it last year as it was the first time I'd seen it since um, I watched it the first time. And um, I was stunned by how much that music is, you know, reverberating through my mind because mm-hmm. I watched it the first time and that Welcome to the Industry song has been in my mind ever yeah. since I saw it. It's and so then good. to come it's back so around, I'm like, it's it's pitch perfect. Uh, there's nothing I can fault about the music in that film. It literally does everything it should do. But then it just goes that one step further. So it's just I, sort of, it's almost just like a parasite in your mind, but a really nice one, if, there's a, if that's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so yeah, haunting melodies for me, like Clint Mansell is, is the one. Stuff. All right, well. So, do we move on to your final? <laughs> yes, and um, mine is another notable choice, but one that's, like, I guess not as uh, talked about these days, and that's my good old boy, Danny Elfman. Um, Lovely stuff, yep. Again, A lot of iconic themes from him. <laughs> <laughs> again, like, uh, it's easy to pick certain films from him, but, like, like with um, Michael Cicchino making me notice uh, film scores with Star Trek, his um, work on one of my personal favorite Spider-Man 2 was the oh, film yeah. score where I was just like, okay, I love film music, especially in superhero films, because mm-hmm. up until that point, you know, I'd seen, you know, a number of superhero films, whether they be in the cinema or on TV. But this was the one. I mean, I really like, you know, Sam Raimi's uh, Spider-Man number one. And I loved his uh, score with that. But this one. There's something about what Raimi does with this film score that just elevates it to tears above. Mm-hmm. His music in this film is integral to everything that happens in this film. With like uh, Peter's moments with MJ, the fight between him and Doc Ock, the revelations that happen with Harry throughout the film, the intro music, which is still to this day, one of my all-time favorite things for any superhero, bar none. Honestly, honestly. Like, it's incredible. As soon as you hear that, like, would you call it, like, um, what, the violin? Like, um, uh, I'm not sure. It's uh, what just, kind of... Yeah, just strings, generally. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as you hear just, like, um, that... And then, like, you know... Yeah, just, and, uh, and then the percussion. Yeah, yeah. So then as soon as it's just like a boom, 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 I'm like, oh, this is, this is hype, man. I've, I've yeah, never, yeah. I gush every time I hear that oh, yeah. score. Oh, yeah. Gorgeous. It has like so many different elements that make a score great, but makes mm-hmm. a superhero score especially good because the great thing about Peter Parker's life is that he's living this double life of being a superhero, but just trying to get by as a human being. He's like, yeah, constantly, yeah, of course. he's late for work. He can't be there for his friends. There's certain like relationships that he wants to make, but he just doesn't have the time. He's living this double life. That's pulling him apart at both sides. And I feel like mm-hmm. Elfman's score perfectly illustrates the highs and lows of Peter Parker's life. Um, you know, yeah, as in, journey. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, 
it's one of my favorite parts of the score is during the sequence where um, Peter has like decided to not be Spider-Man for a while, but then obviously he gets interrupted by like Doc Ock who steals his girlfriend. So Jameson's just chilling in his office. He's just like, oh yeah, you know, I was wrong about Spider-Man. Like, you know, as a, he was a hero. I just didn't see it. But then as soon as he steals the suit back, it's like, <laughs> it was a he stole that suit because I managed the entire city. <laughs> I was Spider-Man. As soon as that music kicks back in and there's that awesome shot of Spider-Man swinging through the city and then it just zooms out into like that frame of sunglasses that's like oh yeah and the way in which that that's music just has book, that's comic book movie making 101 like damn yeah <laughs> and it's just that scene where the music pauses for a second where it's just like uh where is she she'll be just fine let's talk and then the music kicks back up and they start to fight on top of that yeah, uh, that's one of my favorite things about Elfman's score for spider-man 2 like he knows when to when when to stop as well like you, you know he, he hits those hits those peaks but then there are certain moments where like I mean one scene which I always remember is the hospital scene when Doc Ock wakes up and or where no when the tentacles wake up but yeah, yeah. today the tentacles just slaughter all the doctors and and it, it, it's kind of horrifying like that's in a PG movie but like yeah but that's straight up Sam Raimi going like here have a bit of Evil Dead in your Spider-Man movie but um yeah. But, like, that scene is almost entirely music-free. Like, mm. for the most part, it's just, like, the screams of the Doctors and the sounds of the arms. And then, but as the last Doctor gets, you know, axed off and you just see his hand kind of drop to the ground, like, Elfman's score creeps in. And then you sort of feel the horror and realisation as, you know, Doc Ock or Octavius himself kind of wakes up and realises what's happened to him and what he's done. It's like... Oof. Like Elfman knows, yeah, he 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 knows when to when to hit those peaks, but he knows when to let the film breathe as well. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he brings much joy to my soul. Um, that's literally just again one of my favorite, like you know, film scores ever. I will hold that so high until the end of time. To be honest, the next one up on my list is um, a little more like you know classic, um, it's the. Okay. Nightmare Before Christmas. Of course. Um, yep, can't go wrong. He's done most of Tim Burton stuff, I think. I yeah, think. yeah. And this you know is... You what you about the film, but I really rate his score for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I know, I know. And, like, <laughs> I was... Um, I was I was unfortunate enough to be in college um, at least for the first few years where I couldn't properly defend my opinion on certain films. So if they were right, widely regarded as you know being pants, um, yeah. I couldn't really fire back because I wouldn't really have the tools necessary to say it. So gotcha. I know there's since I'd never seen Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory as a kid, I don't have that attachment to it. So I was never able to like you know. Re, uh, relate to people who were saying, oh yeah, Willy Wonka the Chocolate Factory is so much better than Tim Burton's version, blah, 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 blah. I just watched the film in 2005 in the cinema with my dad and my sister, and I thought the songs were amazing, the film score was so much fun, and there was just, there was something odd, dark, and quirky about it that, you know... You know what? I, I, I will say, I actually also saw the Tim Burton one first. Uh, it's, uh, um, you know, don't, don't seem to be the case with many people, but I, I do... You know, in hindsight, it's like, yes, the original with Gene Wilder is the better film. It is yeah. sort of more classic, has, you know, more iconic songs, whatever. But it's like, I don't know. There's, there's, there's things I like about the Tim Burton one, and Elfman's score is definitely up there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but with um, with Nightmare Before Christmas, I think, again, after having been on a media course, you start to notice, like, you know, the certain quirky elements, specific points that, yeah, you know, yeah, make the true. film pop. And his music for that film is great. 
Um, obviously, a lot of the tracks in the film are primarily vocal based, but mm-hmm. there is. And of course, he he provided Jack Skellington's singing voice as well. I know, and that made me so happy when I came to that realization. I was like, "Oh, this is great!" Um, but I would say my three favorite tracks from that uh, film would be obviously "This Is Halloween." It's a classic. Yeah. Um, I have never felt like you know so much joy watching an introduction to a film just because the music and the visuals work so well together. Oh, and perfect. The final segment of the song just before it ends when Jack falls into the, uh, you know, the fountain and then just raises mm-hmm. up the way that music just swells just before it ends. All time favorite film moments. God tier. I love there. it. It's up there. <laughs> um, I also really like, um, Sally's song. Oh, it's lovely. Yeah. Beautiful. Like, there's one of the few times you'll ever see me potentially shed tears in movies. Okay. Um, okay. Well, we, well, we got a, Tell you what, there's another episode for movie moments that made us cry. <laughs> oh, yeah, I look forward to that. Um, <laughs> I've actually had that one on the list for at least about five years now, I think. Right, yeah. Um, and the other song would be, obviously, What's This? I have never felt so much joy. Oh, yeah. I mean, if we're talking at Elfman's instrumentation, like, yeah, just the intro to that is mm, impactful. Yeah, <laughs> it's just... It, it, so it just encapsulates Christmas, like, right away, doesn't it? Like, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Oh, it's so fun. It's just the definition of just, like, put a smile on someone's face, man. I'm just like, mm-hmm. yeah. If I could, like, you know, revisit, like, you know, the era where I was still into running around in the snow and stuff like that, that would be, like, the music playing as I'm running around making snow angels and throwing snowballs at people. Right. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah man, um... The other choices was really hard because, again, I was just like, oh, I could pick between the original Spider-Man or, like, 1989 Batman, which I just, I have a lot of newfound respect for. I rate Batman Returns slightly better, uh, both as a film in general and on the score basis, but I digress. That's fair, that's fair. I need to give, like, uh, Returns another watch because I do prefer it as a film overall from the first one, but I need to give the music another listen. But I would say it was so hard because I almost wanted to put Men in Black in there because I mm. love that score. Mm-hmm. And I really noticed it like about five-ish years ago when I rewatched it again as an adult. And I'm like, his music in here is really good. But then when you listen to it, some of the instrumentation, I'm like, oh, I see the foundations here for what he did with Spider-Man and Hulk. And I'm just yeah. like... It's the instrumentation, like, and the way in which he uses the, um, the orchestral stuff, but some of that sort of, I guess, it's hard for me to describe, I guess, electronic-ish kind of, um, you know, instrumentation in yeah, there as well. I guess it's it's a little more bassy than some yeah. of the other stuff, which, um, which, which works for me. But, um, yeah, I would say after, was it, going through a few Christmases, it's kind of hard not to pick Edward Scissorhands, to be honest. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's classic, you know. Again, God, I, need, I need to revisit that film. It, it's, mm. been, it's been a while. I think I, a, in, I think I was in high school the last time I watched it. Yeah. It like, in, a, in the midst of my Tim Burton phase as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just like watching everything he'd made at that point. Yeah. So. Oh, that's good, man. Like, ah, oh, this film brings me joy so much. The best way for me to describe the, uh, the film score is whimsical. It's mm-hmm. just so fun, otherworldly at times. Very, very fairy tale esque. Yeah, very quirky, but there is like, 
like an emotional core to everything. And obviously, the Ice Dance, one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever composed, to the point where, like many other like notable pieces of music in film, it's been you know repurposed for a lot of film advertising and like you know I think maybe even um, trailers for other films as well. Because uh, I can't remember what company it is. I think it's either BT or one of those other gas companies that's used like um, the Ice Dance in their uh, advertising um, a few oh, years sure. ago. I can't remember which right. company it is for sure, but like I remember, I'm like, I know this music, but I had to watch Edward Scissorhands for a while. I watched it again, like, you stole it! <laughs> so I was just like, oh, okay, I see where you did it. But that song, when used, when um, obviously... Uh, Edward is just carving his like uh you know his little masterpiece and um Winona, Winona Ryder, Ryder is just, yeah just dancing around that is like you said with uh, Jurassic Park with the Brachiosaurus movie magic happening movie magic right yeah yeah absolutely and um rewatching it again during Christmas just recently I'm just like I feel the same emotions every time it's hell yeah hell yeah it's always impressive when a film can still invoke the same feelings uh, every time you watch it and whenever that music starts up I'm just like no one can see me crying no one can see me <laughs> but I still look just to see if anybody's watching me um, because that that music is just amazing I'd say that along with um, Toy Story 3 and Shawshank Redemption are the only films that will ever make me shed tears like um <laughs> okay uh, th- yeah those are all fair ones I'll, I'll vouch for them <laughs> Oh, gosh. Um, I do want to get around to eventually talking about Shawshank because um, oh, that film is think, so good. The problem with talking about Shawshank, like, what else can we say about it at this point? It's, I know. It's <laughs> like, it, like, that's in my top five of all time, okay? Like, that, that film is, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a predictable choice. It's like IMDb's top film of all time and everything. like I don't care it's a masterpiece like it's, <laughs> it's so good <laughs> that's the only real problem um, you know where would you start talking about Shawshank but in theory yes I'm down for talking about it with you sometime though that that's a side note Thomas Newman he'd be a runner up <laughs> oh man I okay so you know what I've 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 wrapped my stuff up for like um, yeah okay so uh, Sorry, so, yeah, like, you know, just in general, I love Danny Elfman's work, and those three would probably be my favourites. That's fair, that's fair. Yeah, man, I mean, like, if we were to talk about runner-ups, there's, like, 50,000 people I was... Sure, really let, let, let's, just rapid, let's just rapid-fire a few runner-ups, you first. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, as you said, Thomas Newman, he's created, like, you know, three of my favourite film scores in the last, like, forever. So, you know, obviously, <laughs> you got Shawshank, you got Skyfall, and mm-hmm. 1917 was, like, one of Ooh, my favourite things ever. Like, The Night Window, pitch-perfect music, mm-hmm. and, oh. <laughs> so... <laughs> Great stuff, great stuff. Freak yeah, me out, yeah. So you, you next, you next. Uh, Bernard Herrmann, if you want to go a little more classic, you know, um, Psycho, Vertigo, and his last score was Taxi Driver. So that's a good note to go out on. Like it's, it's. Uh, I mean, yeah, R.I.P. I'm pretty sure he's gone now, but like, yeah, he's he was a great sort of classic, iconic films that are you know inseparable. From from their scores and like interestingly, Hitchcock didn't originally want Psycho to have any score. You know, he wanted it to just be as grounded and real as possible. But yeah, you you can't think about Psycho now without thinking of that music, whether it's yeah. 
whether it's sort of like that pounding paranoid track as Marion's driving in her car or the shower scene or you know that eerie music music that plays in the final scene it's like mm-hmm. like yeah and Taxi Driver 2 you know you've just got just the seedy like boozy jazzy grimy back arse end of New York it's it's yeah you know you, you, like Taxi Driver is I mean yeah fil- films film is amazing and Bernard Herrmann's score definitely I mean, I mean I'd, I'd say much like Joker Joker definitely lifted more than a few beats from Taxi Driver yeah. um, but like it's um, you know you definitely get that same sense it's just just this overwhelming kind of atmosphere of just like dread and wrapping you up in the main character's just nasty uncomfortable little world yeah just great stuff Good choice. Um, I'd say, like, the only other person I would say that so close in my Mount Rushmore, but he just hasn't quite gotten there, would be Alan Silvestri. Okay, I yeah, yeah. love that man. Like, he's been one of my favourite, like, composers since he worked on um, Predator. Uh, I, mm. I I watched that with my dad as a kid, and I love that music so much. And obviously, Back to the Future as well, like, um, God-tier talent, um, one of my favourite themes ever. And... <laughs> But then there's also obviously his work on the Marvel films as well, yeah. which is equally impressive. Like, mm-hmm. I liked his uh, work on Captain America: The First Avenger, but his work on the Avengers was literally just like he created my, one of my all-time favorite theme songs. Like, oh, so good. Like, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. then when he got brought back to do the final two Avengers films, Infinity War and Endgame, I'm like, there is not it, it brought anything it full circle. Better. It brought it full circle. That's the best. So, oh best. man. And, you know, one of my favorite themes from him in that would be the song Porch, which is like the yep. ending song from Infinity War when Thanos is just chilling in his little garden after having snapped the universe away. It's a very somber piece. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when using the context of like um, Thanos, like just sitting there, it's almost like a slight triumphant, like, you know, piece of work for him because it's just like, I've done what needs to be done. And I did exactly what I said I'd do. And just the way in which that music just ends, just straight there. Watching that in the cinema for the first time, it was just like, that's the perfect ending. You, Honestly. Especially you I, killed it. I mean, I, I was at uni um, when Infinity War came out. And um, it was in my last year. And remember, I went to see it with my, with my housemate at the time. And we... Yeah, when the sort of... Because it was, it was a very sort of understated like end title card that it cut to as well and in that moment when it just sort of cuts you know cuts to black and then you just have Avengers Infinity War and then that just fades away we were yes. both just sort of there like whew, whew, just sort of looked, looked <laughs> at each other took a breath like well that was that was a thing we just witnessed Oof, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no definitely Sylvester's score yeah sells it 100%. But yeah, I mean, I could probably list off a few other people, but I, I've got to yeah. cut the episode now. With, uh... That's fair enough. That's fair <laughs> enough. I'll give a quick shout out to Daniel Pemberton. He's been doing some great work with superhero movies recently, um, Birds of Prey and Spider Verse, notably. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah, but as I say, you, we got to wrap up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could probably do like maybe some more film score related stuff later on, like um, down the road if you're if you're down to return. Of course, of course. <laughs> cracking 
All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is our Mount Rushmore of film composers. I hope you enjoyed our choices. Now I have to ask you, what are your Mount Rushmore film composers? Do you have four people who utterly just like stand out beyond the rest when it comes to crafting music for film? If you have anybody in mind, be sure to drop them in the comment section below or holler at me on Twitter where I'm at hypersonic 55 or at film focus 55. And yeah, man, Ross, is there anything you want to plug before you like, you know, exit the episode? God, let me think. I mean, I guess if uh, if you guys want to follow uh, what I'm doing in terms of my uh, my editing work, uh, I am sort of a, a sort of budding freelance film editor uh, for, for what it's worth. So at uh, Ross Mad Edits is uh, my Instagram handle. Um, Ross Mad underscore Edits. Um, so yeah, there's that. Um, if you if you want to check out my YouTube, um, that's sort of less professional. It's just more stuff. I just kind of talk about as and when, when I have the time for a bit of fun. Um, Kurt, you actually appeared on uh, one of my YouTube videos. We talked about, um, I mostly cover sort of DC comics related topics on there. So, and we talked about the, uh, the Snyder cut and the discourse surrounding that, uh, tail end of last year. So there's that. Um, I'm just Ross Madison on YouTube, so should be easy enough to find. And, yeah, I guess those would be the main two, but, you know, like I said, just keep an eye on, uh, keep an eye on film focus, uh, more so than anything else, because, you know, putting out some great episodes, and, uh, if for some reason people want to hear what I have to say, I'm sure I'll be back for a couple more in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, man. Like, you know, yeah, definitely check out Roz's work. It was a lot of fun being on his channel, and, um, we have a number of other projects that like are in the line work for uh in the pipeline should I say for mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. podcast and like I think some other stuff that we may want to do outside of the podcast so yeah man I mean I just want to again thank you Ross for like you know making an appearance it's always good to have you around man absolute pleasure thanks for having me <laughs> and uh ladies and gentlemen that'll do it for another episode of Film Focus yeah Film Focus I know the name of my podcast I promise um I believe you <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have the next episode in the pipeline, which will be probably the second part to my video game adaptation. So look forward to that when that comes. Hopefully it will be done in the next couple of weeks. But until the next time, this is the Hypersonic 55 signing out. Peace. Peace.